Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today is Daniel Kraft, who's a uh, Harvard and Stanford trained physician, scientist, entrepreneur. He's a Capricorn, likes long walks on the beach. <laughs> Short walks on long piers. Uh, he's also the uh, the uh, chair of medicine and neuroscience at Singularity University, where we actually met uh, back in 2013, I think it was. It was good to have you there, and hopefully you learned something. Well, I, whatever I learned, I'm sure, is completely irrelevant now that three years have passed, right? <laughs> Well, the world is exponential, and uh, we've now had three doublings, so you're at least uh, two, four, eight steps behind. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I, I really found fascinating when we first met, and I've, I've tracked a lot of your talks since then, is, I guess, the diagnosis you make on the medical industry itself. Uh, where, did, where, where, where essentially have we gone wrong uh, with thinking about medicine in a traditional sense over the last uh, several hundred years? <laughs> I mean, the traditional sense of, of healthcare is much more really actually sick care. You know, you uh, don't usually go to your doctor when you're healthy. You wait till something happens. So our, our sick care system is very intermittent with its data. You might get an occasional blood pressure check or EKG. You may be using a fax machine to communicate still with your physician or hospital. And then we're quite reactive. We wait for the heart attack or the stroke or the lump to be discovered at stage three or stage four. Um, and I think we can reshape health, sick care to be much more health care, using your data, your omics, uh, your own interaction with your own information in collaboration with your health care system to be much more proactive, whether it's your uh, simple steps and sleep data or your whole genomics information. We can use that again in smarter ways and spend more of our time, money, and energy on, on keeping you healthy rather than waiting for disease to happen. In the past, this was difficult because people essentially weren't empowered to collect information mm -hmm. in that way. But there were other reasons too, because of incentives and the structure of the industry doesn't really lend itself towards healthcare, does it? Right, and, and even you know, the ivory tower of the hospital, you know, to get a journal article, you had to be a physician or uh, uh, part of a medical school. Now you can access you know, uh, any, almost any paper you could find from anywhere you have internet access. So we've democratized information, we've democratized access uh, to care in many cases. Um, and so the world's changed quite a bit. Uh, and if you think about it, we're talking in 2017, it was only 10 years ago that the iPhone was announced, wasn't even launched. Uh, the first wearables, like the Fitbit, just launched in 2009. Uh, you know, 10 years ago was when Twitter launched and Facebook opened up. A lot of things have just happened in the last decade, which have transformed our daily lives, but also have the ability to impact health and medicine. So the fact that we now almost all are carrying smart computers in our pocket gives uh, you know uh, uh, a kid in a rural village in India almost the same information access as the President of the United States has. So it's a really interesting time to democratize access to information, uh, access to preventative care, public health, and then to pick up disease hopefully earlier and treat it in smarter, more um, uh, inform informed ways. That's the strange thing about the smartphone, that <clears throat> is that if, if you would try to do a business model around creating individual health devices, uh, you, you would never been able to do it. And I guess that's, that's the beauty of something like an iPhone or an Android device. It gives you a, a common platform that you can then roll it out to millions. Right, and they're being used in very surprising ways. Ten years ago, or was it eight years ago when the, the iTunes store launched, we couldn't have imagined many of the things that have evolved on smart platforms. And 
you know, we're at the iPhone 7 today. What's the iPhone 10 going to look like? It may have blended reality. It may have... Um, you know, because I, I, I heard you said that you've actually seen the iPhone 10. I, well, if I told you, I, I'd have to kill you. But uh, <laughs> or if I showed you. But you can have some estimated uh, guesses. We'll know what it'll have. Hopefully a better battery. That hasn't gotten exponential, but it'll have more memory, new sensors. Even like the fingerprint, uh, you know, technology that lets you open it can be used in healthcare to unlock your medicine cabinet or your healthcare data. Um, we'll see hopefully new uh, privacy layers leveraging blockchain come on top of our smartphones and other devices. So um, what I think these platforms do is to democratize innovation because you can be a, a kid in uh, rural India and build an app that could be a health app. Uh, we're also seeing um, we've seen large companies and endeavors build on top of these platforms. Even your Amazon Echo or Google Home, which have just launched in the last year or so, we're seeing health apps being built on top of. So it's a really interesting time where you can reimagine parts of healthcare, not just that there's an app for this or an app for that, but these can be connected in new, empowering ways. And I think the future of the app will be quite different. We're already seeing chatbots emerge and other user interfaces like voice um, that might might supplant uh, logging into separate siloed applications. And I think there are unexpected ways that we can use those interfaces to actually measure our health. And, you know, I, I think people would never have thought that you could actually, you know, read someone's pulse from an from an iPhone mm-hmm. camera, or even a voice could be a biomarker for you know people's stress or health levels. Well, it's interesting, you know, this world of quantified self, which is only a term coined about ten years ago. But I'm actually you know, surprised because normally when I've seen you in photos, you've got at least ten Fitbits. I've only got well, I've got one Fitbit on, which is part of a, a, a kind of a. a work I'm doing with a company called Aravail, where they look at your digital data and your omics and other information and connect you to actual real human coach to kind of synthesize that information. And we're on, of course, my Apple Watch, which is still an Apple Watch version one, which will soon look very antique. Just like if you had to go back and use your iPhone, your iPhone one today, that would feel very slow and clunky. This will look antique soon. I'm wearing a a ring called an Aura ring, O-U-R-A, out of Finland that's really good for tracking sleep and activity. So when I sleep, uh, it'll show you my, my heart rate data, um, how much time I'm in REM and deep sleep, uh, in light sleep, waking time, and sleep is again something we underappreciate, but has a huge implications to our uh, longevity and our the health of our brains. So I'm only wearing a few connected devices, and of course the phone itself now has more and more sensors in it. And whether it's picking up your voice, your sleep, your steps, your social network activity, all those are essentially sort of biomarkers that we're going to learn to do more with so that you'll um, have what I like to call the check engine light for the body, synthesizing information from multiple sensors to hopefully give you proactive guidance before you crash the car per se. Um, Or if you have a a condition like diabetes or heart disease or emphysema, uh, you have a bit of a GPS to help guide you to a certain health uh, uh, destination. This is sort of the shift that you've spoken about between the quantified self to quantified health. Correct. Yeah, because right now the status usually lies on your, on your wearable or your smartphone app. But what's starting to happen is it's becoming connected to your healthcare provider. We're still in the very early stages, but you know, one example, I went to see my primary care doctor at Stanford first time in a few years, and he showed me that on my uh, Apple uh, phone with the health kit data, I can connect that right into my medical record. And then he could see that data and potentially help track my health or disease if I had an issue. Now, my doctor doesn't want to log into my data every day or look at thousands of patients. What hopefully will happen is he'll have software that's going to say, of his 2,000 patients, which 10 does he need to call that day because they're not aware that their blood pressure is out of whack or there's some other signal from their multiple data paths that might be relevant. So for quantified self, owning it ourselves to quantified health and using that to really guide prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. 
given all this data that we're collecting on ourselves, and you mentioned that your doctor is almost too much noise for him to be able to parse himself, we're obviously going to see more um, algorithms and artificial intelligence and machine learning mm-hmm. coming in. You know, in the future, what do you think will be the, I guess, the activities that human doctors will be much better at than machines and that the machines will take over in the healthcare? Yeah, I don't think it's always going to be an either or. It's not going to be, you know, man versus machine. We each do things a bit differently and a bit better in some cases. So humans might be better at empathy and helping in certain forms of decision making and collaboration. Whereas your AI app or machine learning engine is going to be much better at parsing thousands of papers and uh, having less bias when looking at data. So I think it's going to be a bit more of a collaboration. Or or recognizing a, a cancer. Right. I mean, what is a dermatologist or radiologist or pathologist do over years of training they learn patterns this is what a melanoma looks like this is a this lung nodule looks benign or malignant um, so I think the role of physician depending on what field we're talking about might shift quite dramatically the radiologist of the future is going to spend less time looking at every x-ray and seeing the ones that get flagged by the by the AI machine learning the primary care doctor can be augmented to be as good as an advanced cardiologist using the the ultrasound or the digital stethoscope to uh, give you a high-level diagnosis that used to take 20 years of training. Um, So we'll de-skill some things and we'll, I think the primary care doctor, in this case might be a a nurse practitioner, uh, can do things in a much smarter, more integrated way and uh, bring you care without having to wait two more weeks or months for that referral to see the dermatologist or the specialist. I mean, there may be some applications in terms of minor surgery where you would actually prefer the robot surgeon to do it, right? Well, today there's obviously robotic surgery, companies like Intuitive Surgical, but again, the surgeon's directly controlling that robotic every little step. We're going to start to see more and more automated procedures, even things like uh, corrective eye surgery. You know, that's done by laser. The ophthalmologist sort of sets up the device, the computer does the calculations, they press the button, the laser really does the surgery. That's an example of a essentially robotic surgery existing today. I think we'll see in the next decade that when that robot is inside your body taking out your gallbladder, some of that might get more automated. You might The surgeon may draw the line and the sutures will get done. Hmm. Um, so I think we won't see fully automated surgery for some time, but many of the elements might start to get um, integrated and automated and hopefully be done without any tremor or other issues. <laughs> yeah. You know, a little while ago I had on this show um, Ali Pasa, who, who mm-hmm. runs Babylon Health mm-hmm. in the UK, and he was saying that you know, he has a lot of doctors that, that, that are that actually work as part of his organization, but they're not actually necessarily talking to patients. They're actually sitting down with programmers and training the AI system to, to get better at diagnosis. Well, to that point, I've, I've, I've met Ali and I've been to his, his Babylon headquarters in London. A lot of the basic healthcare, the, often healthcare that millions and tens of millions of folks don't have access to, you know, there's many parts of the world where there's not a doctor for 100 miles, can be done by simple algorithms. You know, you have pain when you pee. Uh, does the urine dipstick show blood? Well, you probably have a urinary tract infection. There's probably, this is the best basic antibiotic to take. Right. You don't need to travel 100 miles to see the doctor to make that diagnosis. Maybe in the rural village, the app will do that, the AI app in some cases. Maybe the, the, the drug will be delivered by drone into remote locations. We've already seen companies like at a Singularity University, companies like Matternet were born back in 2011 when it was a crazy idea that a drone could deliver drugs, vaccines, or anything. Now it's a normal idea, and we're seeing Amazon and others do that. Um, so I think technology can democratize healthcare and the sort of the AI machine learning chatbots that can help with diagnosis. There are even chatbots you can go on to uh, uh, Facebook today. Uh, your.md is one example where you can put in high belly pain and it'll help you figure out whether you have appendicitis or not. Where these will head 
is it's going to know it's Mike or Daniel or John or Susie. It will know your history. It'll know that, by the way, you had your appendix out when you were 12. Your belly pain can't be appendicitis. Uh, it might know your omics. It may know where you've lived, uh, what you did last night in Vegas. All those things might be uh, helping inform a, a smarter, earlier diagnosis and help you to triage yourself before you get into trouble and need to go to the emergency room, for example. A key question with all of this is who will actually own the data. I mean, you know, with medical records, I think it was a big advance when we could actually get access to them easily or be certain they were secure. But when you're talking about all of your data from your wearables, it's it's beyond personal. I mean, it's actually the record of everywhere you've been and everything you've done and, and who you've done it with. There's a ton of personal information already in your phone. Your phone knows where you've been, how fast you've been driving. You know, you weren't supposed to be visiting that ho that hotel room at three in the morning. You know, all those things are already um, essentially personal data. You're already sharing that with Google. Yeah, but or you, and, and TSA officials at the border. Apparently, yeah, scary enough. But you know, you're happy to share your little uh, speed and location on your phone because in exchange you get the map of traffic built, uh, Google Maps or Waze, is based on crowdsourcing of your speed and location, which is really pretty private data if you think about it. Um, so what if we could use that same analogy in healthcare, we're donating some data, hopefully in a private, anonymized way, but we get a map back of other patients who are managing diabetes like us, or have similar genetics, or have similar risk factors, and it gives us a better map or traffic uh, <laughs> signal that we can use in our healthcare system. Because a lot of this data exists that could be super useful if we connected the dots. But today, pharma companies and academics and uh, individuals aren't really incentivized to share. And a big challenge with our sick care system is that the incentives are misaligned. The hospital CEO wants the beds full. The, the insurance companies wants the beds empty. Um, and so if we can, again, start to incentivize folks to be data donors and, and share, uh, in opt-in ways, I think we can speed up discovery. A bit like um, uh, some of those, is it like uh, patients like me? Mm -hmm. Well, patient like me let, lets patients connect and even share their data. And in fact, and it's found, it's found some um, correlations that people weren't aware of previously, right? Correlations as well as they can basically almost run their own clinical trials or when <laughs> folks are on trials, they can sometimes figure out if the drug is working or not by sharing information amongst themselves. So there's a real power in leveraging the crowd because Today in healthcare, very few folks are really on clinical trials, and it's often very expensive, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars per patient to recruit them to get into the hospital. Now, again, in the smartphone era, in the last couple of years, you can download a clinical trial for things like Parkinson's or asthma or autism, and the ability then to collect that data in real life on real people in the real world and letting them do that on their smartphone platforms is going to hopefully speed up drug development or ways to pick up autism early or ways to uh, manage dementia or other major issues. Looking a bit further afield, there's been incredible advances recently in genomics and gene editing, tools like CRISPR. And, and in some ways it parallels what's happening in nanotech and in, in other fields where we've kind of figured out that the whole world is programmable. Like there's like it, your ability to code in software in a way almost translates into ability to code in, in biology. Uh, what do you think is on the horizon? Like, What's coming next as a result of some of these, I guess, recent breakthroughs? Well, some of them are very recent. CRISPR is a technology platform for gene editing only evolved about four years ago. It's still in patent disputes between Berkeley and abroad, yeah. uh, but it's very exciting. And the first trials are already starting to happen this year and using CRISPR uh, in terms of uh, gene modification for immunotherapy for cancers. We're already seeing that the Chinese are modifying embryos. They're not supposed to be implanting them yet. Let's wait 18 years to see the Olympics team from China and see how... Uh, Come on, it'll be ginseng. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> But we're very quickly in an era where gene therapy at a very precise level is here, which gives us huge opportunity to take 
often fatal or very challenging diseases like sickle cell disease or thalassemia. Sickle cell disease is an example. In your bone marrow stem cells, there's a single base pair, actually in all your DNA, but in your bone marrow stem cells, there's a single base pair uh, that makes, when the red blood cells are produced, they sickle under stress, and that causes sickle cell and early death and organ issues. Now we could take out bone marrow from a patient, look, take out the stem cells, isolate them, and do gene therapy into those cells and correct that single gene. There are companies doing that already with different like zinc finger approaches. And well, then you then reintroduce it and back then to the you body. do a bone. My clinical field is actually bone marrow transplantation. So we right. can take a patient, take out their bone marrow, fix the gene in their stem cells, reinfuse the bone marrow stem cells, and reboot their immune system, and hopefully they'll be cured of sickle cell. And this is using CRISPR. Today, this has been done with uh, zinc fingers and a few other gene therapy approaches, which are not as efficient. Uh, uh, but uh, I think we'll see CRISPR take over that process. And maybe other diseases like HIV, where you'll be able to modify all your T cells so they're resistant to HIV. You've heard of the Berlin patient who got a bone marrow transplant, was cured of leukemia, but also was cured of HIV because he had a, um, a mutation in a CCR5 receptor, which made him resistant to HIV. We'll see really interesting things come with CRISPR. Now, that's only a four-year-old technology, uh, where this will be in 10 years is a little hard to predict, somewhat scary, uh, mm. because we can not only um, uh, you know, potentially knock out bad genes and, and put in good ones, but we may be modifying embryos before they're implanted to pick eye color, intelligence, or genes that associate with And it with could longevity. be a germline modification as well. You could actually, for all of your descendants, That's potentially. That's exactly right. So you know, the ethics is sometimes being outpaced by the technology. There's a 20-year-old movie Gattaca, if you yeah, watch Gattaca, which was quite prescient, right? The child yeah. is born, he's sequenced at birth. Now we can sequence children before birth using circulating DNA from the fetus, right? That's the new way we're doing prenatal diagnostics. Now, what happens when we start having uh, uh, genetic, uh, uh, you know, sorting folks in classes, who's going to be a good athlete based on their genetics? You can do this today with your 23andMe data. Upload it to company websites like Athletogen and look at your genes that relate to your ability to run fast or do marathons or, or other information. Well, there have been a there have been a number of documented cases of athletes who they thought they were cheating, but it actually turns out it was something essentially in the DNA or makeup, right? Which which gave them almost superhuman abilities. They made more epigen, so they had a yeah, higher red blood cell count. blood cells. Yeah, exactly. So. What happens when we start inserting those genes into athletes or picking uh, the embryos in in vitro fertilization to pick the the child with the best uh, likelihood of being an uh, NFL quarterback? Or well, we do like testing that. now to actually work out the best way of training people, so it's not it's not sure. conceivable. Well, we'll be tuning that. The whole personalization is here, and the hope if we're going to go back a second about low cost genomics. You know, the price of sequencing has dropped from millions of dollars to about a thousand dollars today. So the cost of sequencing has dropped at twice the rate of Moore's law. Uh, I just had my whole genome done for $1,000 by a company called Veritas Genetics out of Boston. Um, and that'll probably be $100 soon, maybe free. The first app stores for your genome were just launched, one called Helix, which was spun out of Illumina. So you may actually subscribe under Helix and have a discounted genome done and pay more when you want more information that's related to your genome. Right. And, and there might be apps around athletics or cancer risk that evolve and people build on top or of Or dating this. sites. Absolutely. You know, it turns <laughs> out... Um, People are uh, attracted by their genetic differences, mostly related to smell and pheromones. That relates to your HLA or different immune markers. So there's a benefit to mating with someone with different. Uh, oh right. So uh, this this is sort of hybrid diversity sure. as translated through through your nose. Right. There's even companies that have launched genetic testing for your preference for wine. I think it's called Viome or Vinome or something like that. Where Winome? I'm not sure what, but our taste buds are impacted by our genes. Uh, some more taste bitter, some have more sweet receptors. So 
we'll start to use this for fun applications, but also to hopefully say instead of if you're my patient, you know, we say, oh, you should get your mammography at age 40, your colonoscopy at age 50. Well, maybe your genetics and other data suggest we need to screen you early, or you can skip your screening, or we should modify so should your parents, diet. So should, should parents actually, the minute their child is born, get a full sequence done to get, I guess, the, the clean version of, 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 of the child? I think in a few years from now, we're going to have a lot more power uh, to leverage that information proactively. You know, how you want to, what diet you might give your child uh, to optimize their health and wellness or prevent them from getting diabetes. We know, for example, you know, the first three years of life are especially critical. If you start giving a six-month-old when they start eating solid foods, don't just give them white rice cereals, but give them whole grain cereals. That dramatically changes their epigenetics and their risk for obesity and other diseases downstream. So you don't need to have a whole genome to know that kind of thing, but we'll learn more about, uh, again, being smart about uh, how you screen someone, how do you optimize their health and longevity, and that might mean that the kids who are born today literally can live to 100 uh, without many uh, medical issues. Epigenetics is a really interesting area, but it's also one I, I don't understand very well. Do, do you mind unpacking it a little bit? Well, you have to, if you unpack the DNA, uh, hmm. we have, might have the same DNA, but what genes are turned on or off is, is, uh, is part of your epi, epigenome, um, right. and how they're sort of coiled and layered. And so we Is this nature have, versus nurture? Right, you might have identical twins, uh, who lived in very different environments. Like and the Kelly twins, so the astronauts. Sure, well, both have been to space, but one spent a longer year up there. He got exposed to zero gravity for longer. While he has the exact same genes, the genes that are turned on or off uh, may be affected long-term. So we're gonna see uh, more and more ability to understand epigenetics, get your epigenome, your microbiome, your, your, your <laughs> proteome, all these omics, and layer them together to give us much more rich data. That, and we need to use, use machine learning and AI to make sense of that. So one small example, uh, Professor Joel Dudley at Mount Sinai uh, in New York, they analyzed the genomes of several thousand type 2 diabetics, used machine learning and AI to, to, to parse the data, and they found three very distinct subtypes of type 2 diabetics. So type 2 diabetes is not one disease. In this case, there are at least three subtypes which respond differently to diet, uh, medication, exercise. So part of this future of healthcare is defining things much more at the molecular level, not just call it, call it, calling it diabetes or autism or lung cancer or dementia. We're going to have much more specific understanding of them and then how to treat them or prevent them will, will come out of that. There's such a massive data and computation element to this future of health. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think it's inevitable that you will, as a result, see pharma companies merging with big infotech companies? I mean, that's already happened. Uh, Google spun out Calico, which is applying, as I understand it. But this is this is just the founders wanting to live forever. Well, a little bit. I mean, they, when you're worth several I mean, billion Zuckerberg's dollars, doing the same, right? You, you 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 couldn't spend that in a hundred years, so you need to have some extra. I heard time. Jeff Bezos has got his own life extension lab out in the desert as well. Well, I don't know. We'll have to talk to Jeff. But uh, <laughs> but what's interesting, Calico is applying, you know, lots of big data, machine learning, omics studying. Maybe let's say you sequence a hundred folks who've lived to a hundred in a healthy way. You know, maybe they didn't have healthy habits, but they've lived to 100 without many issues. Maybe we'll find the genes that relate to uh, contributing to longevity. We're seeing another Google company, Verily, uh, now uh, look at thousands of data points. They have something called the baseline trial. We're gonna start to look at the different omics and digital health signals from folks in real life, because we haven't had people in the world who've been sequenced, who are streaming their steps and their sleep and their blood pressure data. We're gonna learn a lot from that. So. Um, it's still a very early days, uh, hmm. but I think we're going to crack a lot of interesting problems by applying machine learning and big data to all this new omics. So, you know, when someone like Mark Zuckerberg says he's going to give all this money to curing all diseases, 
I mean, how, how much of that is, is real? And, and, and if you were going to do that, where would you start? Uh, I don't think he's uh, got high enough aspirations. Only all diseases? You know? <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it, there's a lot of power in uh, bringing new minds and new thinking. You know, Zuckerberg has this new uh, Chan Zuckerberg Institute based up near here at UCSF, led by two really talented uh, scientists, one from Stanford um, uh, and one from UCSF. And that's going to bring a lot of new power and energy to major problems, which may catalyze significant solutions to many diseases in 50 years. Again, if you could look at the molecular pathways and the omics of different diseases and pick them up before they go from stage zero and stage one to stage two, three, and four, where they're problematic and difficult or impossible to cure, we may realistically be able to stop many diseases in their tracks early. Um, so I think in the next few years, we have a whole different picture of how we define disease, how we might then uh, pick it up early, diagnose, and treat it. Um, for example, I've been involved with the XPRIZE for a while. Yeah. I helped um, catalyze a new XPRIZE called the uh, Qualcomm uh, uh, Tricorder tricor, right? tricor XPRIZE, yeah, yeah. inspired by the Tricorder from Star Trek. Yeah, the final team, will, the winner will be announced in April of this year. Uh, I think three or four hundred teams started that competition. It instigated a whole race to build a little handheld device that could. One of them was Scanadu, right? Scanadu was started actually at my first exponential medicine company. They have a little device that went through trials. Another device that'll you can dip your urine and your smartphone can read the signal. So, the bottom line doesn't mean if doesn't matter which company wins this competition. It's catalyzed a lot of new thinking. Just like the first X Prize, which was won by Spaceship One and Burt Rutan's group, has now catalyzed. Uh, private whole, space, whole commercial space industry, yeah, yeah. Uh, including companies like SpaceX and so. So, what have been some of the new thinking that's been catalyzed by 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 this prize? Well, it got folks, engineers, and others thinking about how do you cram sensors into a small handheld device? How do you manage the data? How do you apply AI to make sense of it? Um, how do you commercialize that? How do you regulate it? Because the FDA got involved to help these things get to market. Because just because you have a new device, technology, gene therapy app. How you regulate it, whether it's the FDA or the EMA, and how do you pay for it if you're uh, Medicare or Kaiser or the VA is all critical. So it's not just the technology, it's how you regulate it, how you pay it, how do you get it integrated. And we're here in Silicon Valley, not everyone's going to have an Apple Watch and Google Glass. We need to make these things work in middle America, in rural Africa. And the new XPRIZE uh, idea that I helped lead up is to do uh, early cancer detection. It's going to hopefully launch in early 2018. And in a, in a nutshell, we want to have a prize to instigate uh, teams to develop a solution for low-cost cancer detection. Very right. low-cost, very accurate, uh, under $24 and under 24 hours from Tennessee to Tanzania. You know, we're not saying what the solution might be, but we want uh, screening for cancer to be as easy as urine dipstick for pregnancy that you could do for pennies or a couple of dollars so that someone in many parts of the world that you don't have access to mammography or colonoscopy. Or so you need to be able to like, detect a tumor, tumor DNA. That, well, we don't, we're not going to say how you solve it. <laughs> it might be companies that are starting to use breath uh, as a biomarker. You can pick up lung cancer right. molecules in your breath. It may be uh, signals that you can pick up with nanotechnology that get amplified in your urine. So again, XPRIZE doesn't propose a solution. It, pr it proposes an audacious and bold goal to catalyze new thinking and uh, uh, folks to go after. So that's, uh, I think, part of this future of healthcare broadly is this convergence of technologies and I think cancer is a perfect area to go after, particularly in the prevention and detection side, because today we spend most of our money on very expensive therapies for advanced cancers, which uh, is often too late. This is one of the ironies that as we live longer, we find more degenerative diseases to kill us later. <laughs> right, well, degenerative diseases have many causes, some of which are catalyzed by our behaviors. That's why 
why our genetics are important, understanding our behaviors and hopefully modifying them that can uh, ward off some of these chronic diseases, whether it's heart disease or joint issues or any number of them. Um, so hopefully, uh, as we live longer, more and more technologies are going to come into the fold, whether it's gene therapy or nanotech or 3D printing of organs, uh, that will help many of us live not just long lifespans, but really great long health spans. Because I don't think any of us want to live to 120, not able to think or get around by ourselves or contribute to society. Are you of the group that just wants to live long enough to better upload yourself into the computer? You know, not really. I, I'm more just in health span. I'd love to live to 120 and then die in my sleep, maybe. Uh, I don't think uh, there are folks that definitely want to live not just uh, 120, 150, but much longer than that. And given the pace of technology, if we don't blow ourselves up in this world of Trumpism, uh, there may be some really interesting uh, solutions that 20 years from now we can't even imagine today. Is there any reason that we can't live significantly longer? I mean, you have some living organisms like jellyfish that are essentially almost immortal. Right, and we've been able to modify some of these genes in, let's say, nematodes and small worms that can double or, or more than amplify their life lifespan. Basically by cutting their calories to zero. That's one approach. <laughs> uh, which, which wouldn't be fun for you and I. Resveratrol in our wine, if in the right form and application, may contribute. We've seen trials on today with metformin, a very common generic drug for diabetes that's in trials now that seems to impact longevity in animal models and might in humans as well. Um, but, you know, the longest lived person ever in history is like 120 something. No it was a chain lived. smoker, right? Exactly. So uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean you should go out there and smoke. But, but she was French, I think. Of course. So uh, I think uh, that, that covers for many ills. <laughs> uh, but there may be some other things that really are maybe 120 something is a real cutoff until we start to understand some of these molecular mechanisms of aging, probably which are multifactorial. There's probably no one silver bullet. Uh, we may have an upper limit. And often that's our brains, right? A lot of folks might be 80 or 90, but a, a good percentage have dementias today. So I think a big nut to crack is going to be picking up dementia before you have it, uh, in a sense, using brain scans, blood-based biomarkers, and then some of the new drugs and other therapies and trials today might stop and reverse plaques. Hmm. So we may have a new way to live older and have our brains have a, a younger brain age, for example. So if there's one thing we could do to actually be a little bit smarter about how we live and look after our health, what would it be? Well, the, the, some of the best advice is very low tech, you know, 30 minutes of exercise a day, whether it's walking or going to the gym, getting uh, seven or eight hours of sleep, having uh, uh, friends and family, the social connection piece. If you're socially isolated, that's as dangerous as two packs a day of smoking. So there's some real basic stuff, mindfulness, meditation, all these things are or yoga, you know, these aren't high tech. So those are all things that I'd recommend everyone uh, gets on top of. <laughs> things like fish oil might be good for you, but there's not a lot of other data about all these supplements uh, to date. Um, and then another thing you can start to do is there's lots of tools out there to help manage uh, health and wellness. If you want to run a triathlon or to manage your diabetes, lots and lots of apps out there. There are some that are wearables that might be useful to you. And you can be the pioneer. You can take that data to your doctor. You have high blood pressure? Go buy a connected blood pressure cuff on Amazon for 30 bucks. Use that data. Show it to your physician. Use that to help manage your high blood pressure. That's not the distant future that's here today. And what we really need to do is catalyze connecting the dots. Uh, and aligning incentives to catalyze the future of healthcare, which in many ways is available, just needs to be um, put together in a smart way. Well, Daniel, it's great to see you. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, and I encourage your listeners to come visit us at Singularity University and Exponential Medicine. Wonderful. You've been listening to Between Worlds. 
For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.